It's that simple, right? Like when we talk about shows that make it or don't, it's as simple as dollars and cents. At the end of the day, you need two things to get to Broadway. You need a person or people who are willing to raise the money, right? You need producers who say, I can raise millions of dollars to make this show happen. And you need a theater owner to say, I will give you a theater. And that's it. Fundamentally, what we need across the world right now, right, is a willingness to think of things less hierarchically in general, but also share and relinquish power. Hello, and welcome to the Theater Art Life podcast, sponsored by Harlequin Floors, world leader in floors, stage systems, and studio equipment for the performing arts. The Theater Art Life podcast puts the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the world, the culture creators, the backstage masters. My name is Ana Aguilera. And my name is Anna Robb. Erica Rutstein joins us to talk about theater production on Broadway. Erika Rutstein is a theater producer, talent manager, and educator. Her work is driven by a passion for music and a desire to nurture creative collaborations built on transparency and mutual respect to create things that have a positive impact on the world. Among the hats that she wears, Eka is a co-founder of the Business of Broadway and adjunct professor at Berkeley College of Music and Drexel University, board chair of Culture Theatre Company. Hello, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. How are you today? I'm just fine. It's, I'll admit, it is bright and early where I am in New York, and I am not usually a morning person. So <laughs> I, I'm a little bit still waking up, but it's a pleasure and privilege to wake up with the two of you. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So tell us a little bit about you. And um, I mean, you do so much. You Not only, you know, you're working in the industry, but you're also teaching and you're the co-founder of Business of Broadway. How did you get into this industry at all? Like more or less everyone who works in this business, I started as like a kid who loved theater and performed in her school plays and musicals. Pretty immediately upon arriving in university, I sort of realized that being on stage was not where I was headed, right? Like was not ultimately the right fit for me. And I started to explore what it meant to work behind the scenes, which wasn't really stuff I like had exposure to until I arrived at college. And as I started to work behind the scenes, I realized that I, I really loved it. And that was really sort of where I felt like I belonged. But I didn't have a language for what I loved doing or where that might lead me career-wise. So it took me a while before sort of realizing that what that meant I wanted to be was a producer, ultimately. I started by getting, you know, an, an internship at a, one of the major nonprofit theater companies here in New York, Roundabout Theater Company. I, I knew that I had done a lot of stage management in college, and what I loved was bringing all of the pieces together to make a cohesive whole. And so I got an internship in special events at Roundabout because I was like, that's kind of like throwing a gala or throwing an opening night. And honestly, it was really the individuals who I had the privilege of working with, whom I would call mentors, who really helped me sort of realize I started producing long before I realized I was a producer, right? And it took a path of like doing a couple of freelance producing gigs and leaving the industry for two years to go to business school and get an MBA and then coming back and interviewing for jobs. And it wasn't until someone said to me, I want to hire you to be a producer that I was like, oh, 
right? Because that's what I am. <laughs> um, and so that's really, you know, it's interesting because even though I do do a number of different things and I love every one of the things that I do, I producers kind of like the the primary title at the heart of all of it, right? Like I work with artists as a talent manager. I teach. All of that is kind of offshoots for me of my primary identity as a producer. And I realized maybe I jumped a couple steps because um, we haven't actually talked about like what a producer does or is, but that's sort of my story of how I arrived at where I am today. Yeah, you were just reading my mind. So now tell us, who's a producer? What do you do? <laughs> so the the sort of like universal definition, right? The like sound bite is that the producer is the person who is running an event, a presentation, a show of some kind, right? And making it happen, right? They're producers across industries. Um, in our business, in the theater industry, a lead producer, right? Like the person who is at the helm of a project, the way, the best way I've found to describe it is that, you know, each theater production, each show is really its own startup and the lead producer is its CEO. So you're really the person at the helm of the project, both creatively and strategically and financially, right? It's your job to foundationally find every dollar that it will require to make the project happen. But it's also your job to build the team, right? To like decide who are the right individuals to create this piece and to shepherd them through, you know, to rather nurture them as they shepherd the piece through its creative process. You know, none of those decisions that a person makes as the CEO of that business are done alone, right? Like a producer, or I'll say a good producer or my kind of producer, right? Isn't making any of those hiring decisions or those strategic decisions in a vacuum at the top. It's all inherently deeply collaborative, right? And you're working with a whole team of artists, beginning with a director who have very strong opinions about things like hiring and strategic what's the word I'm looking for, and the strategy of what is the best trajectory for a show. And you want to be working collaboratively with those people. But at the end of the day, the producer is sort of the one helming the ship from a strategic standpoint and a financial standpoint. So my identity as a producer is both one as like someone who likes to be a lead producer on a project and likes to sort of nurture and create. But um, it's also on a smaller scale just like what I love is working with artists to frankly help their dreams become a reality. That sounds like the corniest soundbite on the planet. But um, like what I realized very early on in my relationships with artists and in the, my sort of like figuring out my identity as a producer, that what I was motivated by first and foremost was the people I was working with. Um, and I would like fall in love with artists. And once I was in love with an artist, I was kind of like, what do you need and how can I help you? Because whatever it is, I'm on board, which is at how I also wound up working in talent management, right? You see how these are all sort of like offshoots of the same identity. And so, you know, there are producers who are sort of driven by, there are stories I want to tell. There are things I know I want to put in the world and I want to find the artists, collaborators to create them with. Uh, and and that is extraordinary. In fact, I'm in awe of those individuals who have that kind of like internal clarity about the kind of work they want to be creating. But that's not the kind of producer I am, right? I'm a producer who's driven by artists and my collaboration with those artists. And then the stories they want to tell are the ones I want to help nurture into the world. 
That's amazing. So what are the some of the um, projects sort of just give us a context of sort of scale and scope and type of projects that you've been producing recently and may, maybe say prior to COVID because COVID is probably a bit of a bad example, right? So but yeah. <laughs> just, just for, you know, if you've got somebody on the other side of the world, what are you producing in New York? Yeah, I um, in my sort of personal independent life, I tend to default to musicals. I'm very motivated and driven by music. And my projects have been more in the off-Broadway arena um, my sort of biggest project to date as a lead producer was an off-Broadway musical called A Hundred Days by Abigail and Sean Bankson. So that sort of by independent work, I just spent the last, I spent not the nine years prior to COVID working as the director of production for Broadway Across America. And so at that level, I was working more in the Broadway arena and sort of the afterlife of Broadway, right? So for example, shows that in their having already been to Broadway, we're now on tour or having sit downs in other parts of the country, like in Las Vegas, or now on cruise ships, I was sort of largely working on sort of that post New York life of these projects. When I first started at the company, I was also working on the shows on their way to Broadway, but the company sort of got out of the business of bringing shows to Broadway early on in my tenure there. So I was more working on sort of the shows in their post-Broadway life. And you mentioned the talent management as well. Like, so how did that, how did you sort of pivot off to talent management or how did that fit into what you were doing? So I was at Broadway Across America. The full story is uh, when I was first hired, the company was very actively developing a number of projects for Broadway. And due to a combination of factors, to be totally frank about it, uh, the the lack of success of the most recent projects, which didn't do very well, they were the sort of revival of On a Clear Day You Can See Forever and the new musical Hands on a Hard Body, which I loved and I feel very proud to have worked on. But both of those shows financially tanked and burned on Broadway. And so following those experiences and for a host of other reasons, well above my pay grade, the company decided that um, rather than sort of bringing shows to Broadway, we would we would focus more on passive investment and uh, and shows other folks were bringing to Broadway, which made perfect sense for the company, but admittedly was a pivot for me from sort of like getting to really hands-on do the work I wanted to be doing shepherding projects to not getting to do that as much at my day job, right? And so that was a moment for me where I was like, okay, if I want to continue really nurturing projects hands-on in this way, I'm going to have to start doing that on my own. And so at that moment, that was in 2013, I reached out to some friends in the theater industry, some actor friends, and sort of said, like, I know you and your friends are always like putting on concerts and doing one-off events. If any of you ever need support, let me know. I'm like looking to like, grow the breadth of what I do. And one of my dear friends introduced me to the composer Drew Gasparini and said, you know, it was the first year that 54 Below, which is a cabaret venue here in New York, had opened. And every composer basically just wanted to like get their music up at 54 Below. Like that was the thing. I mean, that's still true, but it was especially true that year because it had just opened. And so Drew had an upcoming concert at 54 Below and was like, do you want to produce it for me? I didn't know him. Like, I thought he was like kind of bro-y. And I was like, uh, I mean, sure. And I produced this concert for him and I both fell in love with him as a person and with his music in a purely professional way. And um, over the course of the subsequent year, 
I wound up producing 13 concerts in 14 months because I kept like connecting with artists. Like I would go see a reading or a workshop of a new piece. I would love it. I would reach out to the artist and say, I'm interested in like just supporting artists at the moment. Like, what do you need? They would all say, I want to do a concert at 54 Below. And all of a sudden I'd be producing another concert at 54 Below. But half of those shows were with Drew in some capacity, either because it was his own independent work or it was with him and some of his collaborators. And so by like, you know, 18 months into our relationship, I kind of, he had an agent who he loves and who he had a good relationship with, but I sort of became sort of a bit of like a consulting advisor friend to him in his career and sort of a resident producer who was like available to help him put up any of anything he wanted to put up at any given moment. And I kind of looked at him one day and I was like, you know, I've been thinking about like our relationship and what, where like my independent career might go. And like, I've been thinking a lot about talent management. And he was like, yes. So in 2015, Drew became my first client. And for a long time, he was my only client um, because I was still working a full-time job, right? And I didn't feel like realistically I could give anyone else real bandwidth, right? I could tell anyone else that they could have a real significant portion of my attention. So for many, many years, Drew was my only client, but it was really a doubling down on that understanding I developed about myself, which was like, if you wanted someone to produce your concert who would know how to be really savvy with marketing and ticketing and sell out every ticket, I was not your producer, right? But if you wanted someone who would like become really invested in you and your career and how this show might fit within the larger scope of what you're trying to accomplish with your career, that's where I was excited. And that was the way in which I was feeling really connected to the artists I was working with. So it did kind of like lend itself to moving into a more managerial type relationship. Now that I'm I'm out on my own and wholly independent, I, I have five clients. All of them fit in a similar arena to Drew, which is just to say that they're like ultimate multi-hyphenists, right? And since I've I've met with a handful of folks who I am now newly working with of late, the sort of common denominator for me is like this is intentionally a sort of boutique business. I'm not looking to like suddenly have like you know, 25 or 100 clients and a whole staff of folks supporting me. Like, this is like, for me, this is about one-on-one relationships that I have with these artists. And um, most of the artists I'm working with also have agents. I'm not, you know, I am not capable of replacing the incredible work and important work that an agent does for a client. There is a certain kind of artist who has arrived at a clarity or a moment of clarity in their career that can look at me and say, you know, I have a great relationship with my agent, but here's the other kind of support I feel like I'm needing that is more of like a producer strategy management ilk. And when an artist can articulate that, and when I feel like I actually am capable of filling that niche that they've articulated, I know that this is a a, a relationship worth exploring in a management capacity, right? Like I'm not I'm not someone who like, just because having a manager sounds like something you want, I'm the right person for you. I really kind of need to feel like I, we, we mutually understand the niche that currently exists within the work that you're doing that I can really help fill in, in the ways in which I can really help support you. I love the thorough understanding of what you want to do and bring to each artist's life. Thank you for that. <laughs> so tell us a little bit, going back to commercial theater. Uh, which is a lot of your expertise. What is 
commercial theater in a nutshell and how would you describe a Broadway show? What is a Broadway show? What constitutes a Broadway show? So uh, commercial theater is, is for-profit theater, right? So there are a number of non-profit, not-for-profit theater companies all over this country. They actually really are sort of the backbone of the theater industry and theater making within our country. And they sort of operate as nonprofit institutions where, you know, they often produce a season of shows. So a given nonprofit will know that they're planning to produce three or five or eight shows this given year. They'll sell a subscription to subscribers. So they have sort of a returning subscriber base. It's a beautiful thing. There's there's things that can happen within the nonprofit world. There's a certain risk taking that can happen within the nonprofit arena that is much harder to take in the commercial arena. Commercial theater is for profit theater. And the, the primary way in which it's different than the nonprofit world is that truly what I said is, is how it operates. Every single show is its own new startup. So every project you're basically like starting from scratch, you're assembling your team and your infrastructure from scratch. You have to advertise to the ticket buyer on the street, like the single ticket buyer, as we call them, which is the individual who just decides, I want to see your show and I will buy a ticket to it. Um, from ticket one, right? There's no like built-in audience base who, you know, it's interesting because I've had sort of philosophical conversations with people over the years of like, why is it that in the way that an, an individual will become sort of a, a committed returning subscriber to a nonprofit theater like New York Theater Workshop or Second Stage or Roundabout Theater Company, but they don't do the same to a commercial producer, right? Like uh, the average ticket buyer wouldn't be like, oh, this is an Erica Rothstein production, therefore I should go because I follow Erica Rothstein productions. So the ticket buying audience is not paying attention to who the producer is, right? And because it's about single tickets, it's about, is this a show I want to see? It really comes down to just that. Is this a show? with a cast and a story and that and that ticket buyer wants to see. And the fact that like I may have established a brand for myself within the industry about the kind of work I produce matters not at all to that ticket buyer, right? So you don't have that same sort of like loyalty and, and built-in base. And each project really stands alone. And it means that unlike in the nonprofit arena where sort of over the course of a year you need your work overall to be financially successful, which might not mean that every individual show is financially successful as long as over the course of the year, you're able to maintain financial solvency. Every commercial production is its own floating boat that sinks or swims based on ticket sales, right? So either you earn enough money in a given week to cover the operating costs of running your business and paying everybody who works on it, or you don't. And if you don't enough weeks in a row that you literally have no money left, your show has to close. And it's it's that simple, right? Like when we talk about shows that make it or don't, it's as simple as dollars and cents, which can be a little, a bit of a, bit of a punch in the gut, right? Even for me who comes, to, who, who operates as a business person, first and foremost within the industry, because like here we are uh, passionately and thoughtfully creating art. And at the end of the day, it all comes down to money. Right. But the truth of the matter is, is right. It is a theater business and the business side is, is um, what what makes projects sink or swim. <laughs> yeah. And I think also, especially with the Broadway, because I think statistically it's like about 70 percent of the attendees to a Broadway show is like tourists. Right. So there's not that the difference about a loyalty to a theater company that can 
curate stuff across a year is because generally people live in that region and they want to be an advocate for the arts institutions there and they go and see, you know, the shows and some they might like and some they, they may not. But like you said, the Broadway show is just a one-hit wonder in a sense and they're relying on that 70% of the local New York community is not going to keep a Broadway show alive, right? Like that's 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 not how it's going to go. And uh, you correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of them, when you say they fail, they, they they fail. Like they don't make money, and they and they they close. Like, and I think statistically, I read where somewhere like the percentage that like actually made it, and I'm like, why would you do Broadway at all? Like, <laughs> it's crazy. Yes to all of that. Yes to <laughs> all of that. Um, it is. I think they. You know, the the average statistic is that twenty percent of Broadway musicals. Right. The statistics are a little different for plays and musicals, but twenty percent of Broadway musicals will. The, you know, recoup, which is, uh, which means actually earn their initial investment back, right? So they don't just make enough money to stay open. They actually make enough money to earn profit that they can return back to the investors. And 20% of Broadway show of Broadway musicals hit that moment of having er- been able to stay open and earn enough money to pay back their investors and then potentially and that's just paying back their investors. Right? I mean, that's, that's just, insane. That's really that's I mean, just if investors if you went to a not having lost yeah. their money. If you money, went to a right? financial advisor, they'd be like, "Don't go there." <laughs> Literally, one hundred percent. Right there, there's. I, I, if I can't tell you how often someone from another industry, right, is like, "Why hasn't like VC money moved into the theater business, or why aren't there more like investment funds?" And it's like because it makes no sense, right? <laughs> because like we can't look at. Uh, savvy Wall Street investors and provide them any guarantee what's <laughs> right. You could, but you'd be lying, right? Like to to pretend that there are any metrics mm-hmm. that guarantee success, and to pretend that this is like a a good good potential risk, right? Now it is one of those where it's high risk, high reward. It is that kind of business, right? When something does do well, when you have a Wicked or a Book of Mormon or a Hamilton the success is outsized, right? That 20%, about 10% of the 20% that recoup are then these like huge mega hits, right? For which the reward is enormous and long lasting. But it is very risky. And I'll only, um, and I'll talk to um, your point about the audience, the makeup of audiences as well, just to say, this is also why things are a little bit different for plays and musicals. Plays don't usually enter the Broadway space looking to like sit and run indefinitely. Occasionally you have a play that does, but for the most part, plays come in as like limited runs, right? Like they know we're going to come in and play for six months, maybe in a best scenario we'll extend for a year, but they aren't looking to like run for 10 years, right? Musicals come into the space hoping to run forever, right? And what you were talking about as far as like the demographic of ticket ma- of ticket buyers, there is a big difference that happens in like the first, now I'm literally making up numbers, right? So I am not the person who actually has these facts, but like, let's call it a year or even two years of the life of a show. The ticket buying audience in that window is much more local, tri-state area buyers. And it's it's how you sort of tip over into a long running show is by being able to appeal to that tourist base because it's after after a certain point in the life of a show, the scales shift. And suddenly you're relying predominantly on tourists to keep your show alive. And, you know, it's, it's part of why there was a lot of speculation during COVID about whether it was actually the long running shows, like the big megas 
that might have the harder time now in this, I'll call it post-COVID, even though we're very much still dealing with COVID, now in this post-COVID window, because they rely so heavily on tourism and, and on tourist buyers. Exactly. And we don't have those right mm. now. Mm. Um, and, and the verdict is still out. Right. I think we're going to know much more. Listen, January and February are always terrible months on Broadway. There's no tourism. The weather is bad. And there have been sad, worrisome predictions about what that might mean for the shows that are currently running this year. But only time will tell. The jury is still out, right, about how this will actually all impact all these shows. But, you know, it, it will be interesting to watch because we are in this unique position where it's the, it's the tourist market that's missing. And in a lot of ways, that is a more dramatic impact on actually the shows we think of as hugely successful. And now a moment for our sponsor. The Theatre Art Life podcast is proud to be sponsored by Harlequin. Harlequin is the world leader in floors, stage systems and studio equipment for the performing arts. Established in the UK over 40 years ago, Harlequin is the preferred performance floor for the world's most prestigious dance and performing arts companies, theatres and schools. From the Royal Opera House to the Bolshoi Theatre, the New York City Ballet to the Royal New Zealand Ballet. Harlequin's experience and reputation are founded on the development, manufacture and supply of a range of high quality sprung and vinyl floors specifically designed for dance and the performing arts. Backed by an engineering team and independent research, Harlequin also designs, builds and refurbishes stages working with stage engineers and theatre consultants in leading venues across the world. Harlequin is the global leader in its field with offices in Europe, the Americas and Asia-Pacific. Find out more at harlequinfloors.com, H-A-R-L-E-Q-U-I-N floors.com. How would you describe the life of a Broadway show from conception till the day it closes? Oh my gosh. Well, I teach like a three hour course on this. So I'm going to try <laughs> to tell you in more like three minutes. Um, so, you know, listen, the development project. So, you know, I work primarily in musicals. So I'm going to sort of default to talking about musicals at the moment. Musicals tend to take anywhere from like five to 10 years of creation time of what we call development time before an audience, before it it's seen by an audience no less potentially makes it to Broadway. So this is a long and slow process, but it always starts the same, which is someone somewhere has a moment of a spark of creation, right? Whether it's an artist, whether it's a producer, that artist could be a writer or a director or a designer. Someone somewhere reads something, thinks something, sees something and says, I want to write a show about that, right? And then, you know, again, this is plays and musicals the reason a play can potentially have a much shorter and a much quicker development life is, you know, theoretically on a play, you have one author, right? And they have one um, type of medium through which they're telling the story, right? So an author can go away, write a script, get some feedback, go away, write a second draft of a script. And maybe that script is now like ready to be seen by the world, right? Musicals have an endless growing number of moving pieces, right? Even just from the start, the sort of foundations of a musical are the book, which is like the script and the dialogue, the music and the lyrics. They're considered three separate pieces of creation that go into the whole of a musical, right? And sometimes like in the case of Hamilton, you have one person like Lin-Manuel Miranda writing all three, but more often than not, you have two or three people at minimum writing those three pieces, one writing book, one writing music, one writing lyrics. I'm working on a show right now where the score, the music and lyrics are actually being written by a collective of musicians 
and uh, sort of like a band who play and devise work together. So we have a writing team of eight people because we have one person writing the book and seven people writing the music and lyrics, right? And so it's inherent, there's a, there's a the, the collaboration, the collaborative process starts from the minute you want to start putting something down on the page and figuring out what story you're trying to tell. And it just means that like figuring out how to tell the story through three different functionally media, right? Through the spoken word, through the sung word and through music takes a while, right? Like to get all the pieces working and to make sure that like how you're telling the story and what story you're trying to tell and whether you're effectively doing so all really comes together. Right. Also, in a case where you're, you are working with multiple artists, every artist has their own creation process and every artist might arrive, might need a different type of support and time to sort of like wrap their own heads around rewrites and, and their, uh, approach to the material. And so you wind up sort of like taking the time. It, it requires the time for this team as a collective to, Evolve, both develop the show and also work through their own evolution of their approach to the show. And then there are sort of like standard steps that once you start feeling like ready to hear a show out loud, there's sort of some standard steps that are sort of the default ways that development happens in our world. Like you can do a reading, like you can just have your actors at music stands with scripts read and sing the show aloud for the sake of hearing it aloud. And from there, you could build up to like a fully staged workshop where you literally bring the whole show to life on its feet with like some dummy set pieces and props that aren't pretty, but functionally do what you need them to do. And you've like basically brought the whole show to life, but without like lights, right? Not in a theater, just in like a rehearsal room and anything in between, right? Like you could maybe just do a dance workshop or just stage the first half of the show or just stage the finale of act one because you really need to figure out if you can make the finale of act one work, right? And which of these steps you choose really, you know, in, in, in the school of thought of me and my business partners who sort of teach this stuff is that what you should be doing is constantly checking back in with yourself about what does the project need in this moment? Because that's going to, the answer to that's going to change all the time, right? Where are we in this process and what do the artists and the piece need? What is it we need to hear or see out loud in this moment to understand what is or isn't working? And you kind of, in an iterative process, write and listen and see and write and listen and see until you feel ready to share it with the world. Um, and when you do feel ready to share it with, the, with a ticket buying audience, right, because that's in these development steps, you can invite people to come see it, but you can't sell tickets, right? It's, it's purely for internal uses, right? When you're ready to have a paying ticket audience see it and to be on a stage with a full set and full lights and full costumes, oftentimes these days, people, producers will take shows for sort of a tryout, uh, we call it an out of town, even if even if it happens in New York, um, but sort of like an out of town tryout before coming to Broadway. So either you're in you're working off Broadway in New York or in partnership with a nonprofit theater in New York, or you're working in partnership with a nonprofit around the country, or you're mounting it commercially around the country. But one way or another, you're getting it in front of a paying audience with its full physical production, you know, sets, lights, sound. Uh, so that you can, A, get the feedback of an audience about what's working and what isn't. B, C, it's the first time you're probably seeing most of the physical production elements fully realized. Are they working? Are they not working? And C, start to build buzz, right? Start to generate 
energy and um, press coverage and buzz around your show so that by the time it comes to Broadway and it does land in New York, it's something people know about and are are anticipating. So assuming that out-of-town tryout goes well, your last step would be to try to secure a Broadway house. And, you know, again, this is one of those like gut punch moments where it's like, but we're creating art here. At the end of the day, you need two things to get to Broadway. You need a person or people who are willing to raise the money, right? You need producers who say, I can raise millions of dollars to make this show happen. And you need a theater owner to say, I will give you a theater, right? You need a landlord to say, I would like you as my tenant. And that's it, right? And we, right now we operate as, you know, an oligopoly, which to me is a word I love to say because it like makes me think of being in like, fifth grade history class and learning about different kinds of governments, right? We operate in a, our, our Broadway houses, the majority, there are 41 Broadway houses, 31 of them are owned by just three companies, three organizations who control 31 of the 41 theaters. And so, you know, it, it becomes about developing relationships and getting one of those theater owners to see something in you or your artist or your project. And therefore, you know, whether it's, that they are artistically excited by the project or whether it's that they think this is likely to be really financially successful or any number of reasons in between, you just need one of them to say, yes, I will give you a theater. And then if you raise the money, the Broadway show happens. That's amazing. I, I The question, rewinding back to the beginning, I would assume, uh, maybe I'm just wrong, the, at, the, at the beginning of it, that person that comes up with that spark of an idea if that person is not well known, they're going to have to go to a certain point of writing and creating that without getting paid until they can put it in front of a producer that's interested. And or if somebody is a well known person like Lin Manuel Miranda, we turn a producer might go to him and like write me a new musical. Here's some money, go right. Like the producer might come in at different points. Would that would that be right to say? Like one hundred percent, one hundred percent, literally. Um, It could be that an artist, it's exactly as you just said, Anna, Mm -hmm. so forgive me, I'm mostly just going to repeat what you just said, Mm -hmm. but um, truly an artist could be the one who has that spark of creation and they could go away and work on a piece a long time and then uh, before they sort of find a producer, whether that producer is a commercial producer or a nonprofit institution, right, who wants to support the development and the production of that show. Or the spark of creation and or the spark of creation could happen with a producer, right? A producer could have the spark of creation mm. and then go looking for the writing team to write. Like a, a classic example of this is uh, Margot Lyon, the late great Margot Lyon, um, who produced Hairspray, among many, many other things. The, the story she used to tell was that she was home with a cold, sick in bed and decided to put on her favorite John Waters film, Hairspray. And as she was watching it, it was like, this, this should be a Broadway musical. And so then she went and found the artist to write it. So from day one, there was a producer attached to the project. Right. Yeah. And whereas if the spark of creation is by an artist, they could potentially, if they have relationships, find a producer right away to be a part of the process with them. Or they could get any number of ways. They could wind up producing readings to try to woo producers, right? They could get many, many steps down the development sort of pipeline, if you will, before they sort of wind up uh, finding the right producer and entering into a relationship with a producer. So producers could enter truly at any point in the process. There are, there are commercial producers who sort of like are known for and publicly say that what they're interested in is they're not interested in development. Mm. They're not interested in like the, they're, what they see as their skill set is not shepherding a show into the the world. It's 
finding the show and moving it to Broadway. Yeah. Right. So there are producers who look to the nonprofits for shows that they feel are ready to be moved because that's sort of what they feel their skill set is and what their niche is within the business. All right. I have two questions. I'm not very relate ish. So <laughs> they're kind of operational. Once you decide that a show is ready to move on from Broadway, how do you decide a show should close or a show should go on tour or a show should go to a different city? And in that decision making and when the finally the show finally makes it to an end, what happens to costumes and set pieces and props? <laughs> yeah, okay. So you're going to keep your show open on Broadway until you can't, right? So even if you decide you're ready to send the show on tour or send the show to the UK or any or Australia or anywhere else around the world, right? You're going to keep your show running on Broadway as long as it's making money and you can keep your show running on Broadway, right? Now, there are exceptions to that, right? There are there have been shows where like let's say it's a show that's super dependent on a star lead performer and you aren't able to find an, an equally starry individual to take over that role, it does happen that you would preemptively decide, okay, so when the starry at performer, when their contract is up, we're going to call it, right? But honestly, more times than not, you're going to cast someone who's not quite as starry and see, see if the show can keep itself alive, even though you suspect maybe it won't, right? And only once you see in hard numbers that you're not selling enough tickets to keep a show open, will you then decide to call it, right? Because there is, as a producer, as a lead producer, you go out and raise money from anywhere from dozens to hundreds of people to help fund your show, right? Like the average Broadway play, commercial Broadway play costs, let's say three to six million dollars depending on whether it's a small play or an enormous play the average broadway musical these days ranges from 15 to 30 million dollars right so you're going out and raising a lot of money from other individuals and you actually have a fiduciary responsibility to those people to do everything you can to try to earn them their money back right so you're actually at the end you know legally according to like the investment paperwork that you give those folks and that they sign, you can do anything you want basically with their money. And as long as you're operating within the bounds of the law, they can't get mad at you. But on an interpersonal level, you are accountable to these individuals who are going to be like, why did you make that decision? Why did you close early if I could have potentially earned more money? Right? Why didn't you give it a shot with another actor and see if the show could keep running? Right? So usually there are exceptions, but usually you're going to keep your show running until it's not earning enough money anymore to keep it running. So that decision is actually separate from when are we ready to go out on the road? Basically, these days, if a show has any measure of success in New York that gives the theaters around the country that sort of present tours, right, like the, that, those big presenting houses all over the country that the tours come into in local cities, as long as a show has enough success on Broadway or is a brand or a story that they feel their audiences will want to see, you'll try to launch a tour within 18 months to two years of opening on Broadway, right? So like you'll open on Broadway and based on the reception it gets on Broadway, you'll put wheels in motion to try to launch your tour for not usually like the immediately next season is too soon. So like 
it, this this is currently the 21-22 season. So trying to get a tour into the 22-23 season would be too soon. But you're going to push as hard as you can to make sure that you're out on the road by the 23-24 season. And it really comes down to are those big houses around the country, do they believe that your show is one that they're, that they're subscribers because they sell subscriptions, that their subscribers will want to see? And if so, they'll book you. And are you budgeted the way they want you to be budgeted, which is to say, is your show more expensive than they think it should be and therefore they don't want to take the risk? Or is it sort of in the sweet spot of where they think a show that might sell it like yours is should be and therefore they will take the risk? So it's like all these business factors that are that are relatively subjective, right? That are like being that are it's ultimately at the discretion of the theaters around the country. Do I think this show at the price that it is? will do well in it for my local audiences. And for the most part, there tends to be a, a consensus, which is to say that like, it's pretty rare that like four venues are really interested in the show and nobody else is, right? There tends to be a sort of a consensus and like, yeah, the show will do well on the road or no, the show is a bigger risk. And so tours are pretty much a given these days, as long as as long as you're able to, right? As long as the the road expresses interest in having your show, you're going to put a tour out. And I'll just very quickly, without like going into the, the crazy detail that could take us hours, say that whereas the Broadway producing model is so freaking risky, as we were talking about, the touring producing model is relatively much more stable. So for producers and investors sending a, tour, a show out on tour is very, very attractive because it has a much more stable business model. And some of that income, even if as an investor, you didn't invest in the tour, because when you send the show out on tour, you have to create, this is now a whole new business entity, and you have to raise the money to put that show out on tour all over again, right? But even if an individual that investor that invested in the Broadway production chooses not to invest in the touring production, some of the profit from the tour will go back to the Broadway investors, right? Because it's, this is sort of a subsidiary functionally of that Broadway production. So everybody benefits from a tour. International productions are more specific to the property. Is it the kind of story? Is it the kind of brand that will sell well to a UK audience, right? London tends to be the other potential default. It's not as default as tours, as just going on tour. But otherwise, like, you know, do you want to bring this show to Australia, to Germany, to China, to, you know, Amsterdam, right? That really depends on, is there an appetite for this particular story or this particular brand within that community? Um, and usually by the time you are bringing a show overseas, as an American producer, you're not doing that alone. You're partnering with a local producer in that country, in that city, who knows the in and outs of that local business to bring the show to that to that local market. You asked about where the costumes and the sets go. She did. Um, so, so it's a, the answer is it depends. You're going to try to hold on to that stuff as much of it as you can, as long as there's a glimmer of hope that it might get reused, right? So if you need to close your show, but you know you're planning a tour or you know you're planning a London production, you're going to try to hold on to that stuff if you can to reuse for those productions. Now, reusing it on tour is much easier than getting it to London. So maybe even if you're doing an international production, you'll decide it's not worth it and you're better off just rebuilding it all in London. Again, giant set pieces, 
a very different thing to try to store and ship around the world than costumes. Costumes more easily stored, more easily shipped around the world. So not all pieces of the production are the same. I mean, if you knew how many shows, like how many boxes exist in storage around this country of like remnants of shows that are like that producers are just not ready to part with lest we potentially need it again. I mean, you know, I produced 100 Days. Our last production was in 2019. And I still have, you know, it was a very small show. The set was not huge. But I still have the pieces of the set and all the costumes in a storage locker in the basement of my grandmother's New York City apartment building. And because it's free, there's no real pressure for me to like (laughs) annually decide if I want to keep it there. So I'm kind of just going to keep it there until I have to throw it away just in case. You know, <laughs> that's amazing. That's amazing. I love that. I love that. My gosh, that's so much information. This is it's really cool. And that's no wonder that you started the business of Broadway, right? So just <laughs> tell us a little bit about the business of Broadway and why you started it and, and what it offers. The business of Broadway is, is an education business that I started with three of my peers and dear friends in the business, Rachel Sussman, Heather Shields, and Dana Lerner. And it was born of Honestly, for me, it was born of my relationships and my work with artists. I was sort of blown away, not in a good way, <laughs> by how, by the like growing understanding of just how little anyone talked to artists about the business side of the business. You know, I had Drew Gasparini, who was already like in his early 30s and, you know, established in the business and working on Broadway bound projects, look at me on a subway platform and be like, okay. So I know Lin-Manuel Miranda's making a ton of money from Hamilton, but like, how is he making that money? And I was like, oh, you actually have no idea how you're going to get paid when your shows get to Broadway, right? Nobody's ever talked to you about it. I had another writer look at me in a theater of a nonprofit run of their show and be like, so who, who pays me? Do you pay me? Do they pay me? How do I get paid from this? And it was like, I was having more and more conversations like that, that made me be like, this this is crazy, right? Like, there's just no reason we could, I I could have, I could editorialize for you for another hour about my feelings about the lack of transparency that exists within our business. I think we have lots of problems ranging from equity period and access period to racial equity and access and everything in between. But I, and I don't mean to lump all of the struggles together with one, you know, potential solution, but I, I happen to personally think transparency is a is like a uh, a potential lever that could really open up a lot of our equity and access struggles as an industry across the board um, because people just aren't willing to like everyone holds things very close to the chest right there's that instinct of there's that feeling of competition right every show is its own boat that needs to sink or swim and so at the end of the day there's like an unwillingness to just talk candidly about either the choices you're making, the decisions you're making, both with others within the industry, but also even just with the artists. So artists often find themselves in a position of like decisions getting made about their work or about their project or about their livelihood, that they aren't in the room when those decisions are made. And nobody ever really explains what went into those decisions. They're just told the outcome of those decisions, right? And so together, we decided to start the business of Broadway to try to change that at a very small level, right? And so our initial sort of like mission and audience was we were trying to educate artists, right? We wanted to be a place that artists could come to understand and learn how the commercial theater business operated. 
so that they could, even if they didn't ever want to be producers themselves or work on the business side of the business themselves, they could have a better understanding of the various variables and factors and considerations that were going into these decisions that were being made in the rooms that they weren't invited into. So that's how we started. And we launched the business in the fall of 2019. And we would just sort of like email artist friends and be like, want to come take, want to come be a guinea pig? We, and we started with like a, a producing 101 curriculum. And that was like the two and a half hour class that covers some fundamental language, a lot of the stuff we talked about today, the creative life cycle of a show, and then sort of an overview of the finances of Broadway. And then the pandemic hit. And we pivoted to teaching digitally, because or virtually, I should say. We were teaching in person here in New York. And suddenly, as was true for so many industries in so many ways, moving to a virtual platform just opened up the door for folks from all over the world to be able to engage with things that used to be geographically specific. And so that was true for us as well, right? All of a sudden, students from all over the world were signing up for our classes. We like to refer to like the artistic identity, right? Like the artistic identity of those individuals was no longer just as artists, right? Some of them were aspiring producers. Some of them were just fans of the industry who wanted to know more about how the industry operated. And also what started to happen was um, as conversations around thinking about why how we have done business historically might not be the way we should continue to do business moving forward, began to be much more prevalent within our industry. Our classes started to become sort of like a fertile breeding ground for those conversations, right? So our classes sort of became a place where we could share, create a shared knowledge base of how things have operated historically on which to then interrogate Okay, so why has they? Why has it always been done this way, and how could we be doing it better? So I'll say candidly that the, our curriculum didn't change a ton. It changed some, but it didn't change a ton. But the, the content of the Q and A that happens at the end of class shifted dramatically. It's been really exciting, and um, I feel really proud to be a part of this team and to and to be a part of the conversations that happen in in those Zoom rooms um, because it makes me really hopeful. That like together as a as a cohort of theater makers, asking questions and hoping to figure out how to do things better than they've been done before, we might, you know, we will be able to be a part of the, you know, each each in our own way be a part of the change. I should say we now teach like you know six different curricula, the producing one hundred and one curriculum, and then like a number of sort of deeper dives into specific topics, and we tend to offer like two or three classes a month. Um, we try to keep them really accessible from a from a cost standpoint, the most expensive is $45. We just sort of like teach two or three classes a month for the rolling audience of individuals who are interested. Now I want to enroll. <laughs> I would love to have you. I'll, uh, just let me know. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say is the favorite thing about you, Jeff? Your favorite oh, thing? You know, for me, I mean, I know I've sort of said this and I know I'm like continuing to be kind of a corn dog here, but for me, it's the relationships, right? Like I, and what's been lovely about this window of time, this window of like reopening and realigning and figuring out, feeling like from a place of reset, each of us as individuals get to be a little bit more intentional in deciding like how we want to use our time and where we want to put our energies. I feel like I get to like sort of operate in my small little rooms and I mean even if they're not physical rooms because we're we're spread out across the country but like you know operate in our own little silos with my own little silos with artists just like doing the work we want to be doing and we believe in without the same kind of pressure 
that we used to feel of like, unless it's going to a big stage, unless we know exactly what the plan is, like, why are we doing it? I feel like it's created some freedom for all of us to just create for the sake of creating and putting content and stories into the world because we believe it's content and stories that the world needs to hear. And that's been really wonderful and fulfilling for me because that's what I love the most, right? Like I had, you know, Abigail and Sean Bankson who are who wrote 100 Days In Are Now, two of my clients. They were working on a on a proposal or they were working on a project. And I was like, great, you know, we have a relationship with this nonprofit. Why don't we pitch it to them and see if they want to partner with us and we'll all work on it together. And I literally said on the phone, I was like, you know, which means I'm going to have to create a proposal. And you both know that whenever like create a proposal for X is on my to-do list, it takes me weeks to do it because it's the thing I avoid. And that, you know, so I just ask for your patience because it's going to take me a while. And Abigail turns to me and she's like, or if it's the thing you don't like to do, don't do it. Like, how do we have this conversation without you having to go away in a vacuum and do something you don't like doing, right? Can't we just say to them, want to have a phone call and give them the proposal verbally? And I was like, wow, how freeing is that, you know? And so there's something really lovely that's come with this reset that's allowed us all, I think, to just focus on, rather than the shoulds, the like, what, how, how do we want to bring work into the world and how can we lean into that? And for me, that's 100%. Try, you know, trying to hold on to that and make decisions based on that is the thing that's definitely keeping me grounded and joyful right now, feeling the freedom to make those kinds of decisions and be like, I know that's how it's usually done, but I don't, that's not the right, that's not, that's not, how, that's not going to bring me joy in my life. So how can we do it better? Right. It's, it's been really amazing. That's a really wonderful answer. I appreciate all of that you've just uh, covered many. And that's not, well, I don't think that was one thing. I think that was a few. <laughs> If you were to tell us what one thing that you could change in the industry or the job that you do, what sort of comes to mind at the top of your list as, as, a, as a to-do? I mean, this, is, this isn't novel by any stretch of the imagination. I've alluded to it a bit before, right? Because for me, it, it really starts with transparency. But I'll add to that in saying, to me, what that means is really honoring every person's humanity, right? So, you know, there's there has been a lot, there's been tension in our business over the last year at many levels, right? Between members and their agents, between artists and their producers. And for me, all of those moments of tension, watching from afar, it feels like um, one of the central commonalities is that the person in the perceived position of power in that relationship isn't willing to just talk candidly and honestly to the person to the person in the position of perceived lesser power. And instead of just being like, well, you're a human and I'm a human. So here's what's happening on my side of the table. What's happening on your side of the table? There's that feeling of you're challenging my power. And so what I need to do is like shut the door and protect it. And fundamentally what we need across the world right now, right, is a willingness to think of things less hierarchically in general, but also share and relinquish power, right? Share and relinquish control to voices and individuals who have not had the same opportunities to sit in those positions of power and control historically and in the creation of work and when we're talking specifically to our business. And I think all of that starts with just everybody talking to you and treating each other as equal human beings. And because of the hierarchy that exists within our business, 
and within our business structures. I, I think foundationally, like that is a thing that needs, like that's like dismantling level one um, to get us to a place of building towards both a new kind of leadership and a new face for leadership within our business. And maybe leadership is the wrong word because here I am talking about wanting to dismantle, you know, to, to create less hierarchical systems. And yet the language I have to date in my arsenal is still leadership-based, right? So maybe it's also about creating new language that uh, reflects that desire to operate in a less hierarchical way. But I, th I think that's where it starts. I think it starts with talking to each other transparently as equal human beings in order to come up with the solutions and the paths forward and the innovations together. It's really interesting that you say that because I actually don't think I've ever really thought about that in terms of a transparency aspect of it. And the interesting thing about transparency comes accountability, right? You've got to, if people know those decisions that are happening, then there needs to be accountability for those decisions and people are more likely to act with integrity when the world is watching them. So I think that's just an amazing I've never looked at it that way. I think transparency is a really good way to begin that process. So I, I applaud that answer. I think that's really cool. Thank you. I mean, listen, you know, because folks can only hear me and not see me, I will also honor, I am a white cis woman. Um, and so, I, you know, I also uh, recognize the privilege that I have had in my career that have made it possible for me to be where I am and do the work that I do. And I also recognize that I am not the one who should be pontificating about the solutions either. <laughs> but everybody has to be a part of the solution, right? So it's not Amen to that. that that's Amen it. to it's, that. It's not left to people that are marginalized. It's everybody at the table. So Ab Absolutely. Amen mm. to that. Mm. Thank you so much, uh, Erica. This has been a wonderful conversation and I have learned a lot about Broadway that I didn't know. Um, I so thank you for joining us today on Theatre Out Life. It was such a pleasure. Thank you both. Thanks for spending the morning with me, and I hope you have a great day. Theatre at Life is a global media site for entertainment. Memberships start at only $38 US per year. You can have unlimited access to our daily published articles, including entertainment news and the writings of active industry professionals, ensuring that you are always up to date on the global happenings in the world of entertainment. Become a part of the international entertainment community and join us now at www.theaterartlife.com.